Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, as we inch closer to Halloween, I thought we could revisit one of my favorite episodes, which is about the supernatural beliefs that flourished in the wake of World War II in Germany. It's spooky, it's surprising, and it's fitting since I'm coming back from Germany myself. Enjoy. Between 1947 and 1956, at least 77 recorded witchcraft trials took place in West Germany. Wonder doctors and faith healers walked the land, offering salvation to the tens of thousands of sick and spiritually ill wartime survivors who flocked to them. People hired exorcists and made pilgrimages to holy sites in search of redemption. Monica Black, a historian at the University of Tennessee, found these stories and many others in newspaper clippings, court records, and other archives of the period. They testified to West Germany's supernatural obsession with ridding itself of evil and complicate the conventional story of its swift rise from genocidal dictatorship to liberal consumerist paradise. There was a spiritual malaise lurking in the shadows, the unspoken guilt and shame of a country where Nazis still walked free. But what evil meant to individual West Germans and who caused it are complicated questions with a wild variety of answers. Sometimes those accused of witchcraft had been complicit in the crimes of the Holocaust. And sometimes the wonder doctors were themselves ex-Nazis. The true irony of Monica Black's new book, A Demon Haunted Land, and of this period of West German magical thinking, is that the real magical thinking might ultimately have been that a clean break with Nazism was possible at all. Monica Black joins us from Knoxville to talk about the witches and wonder doctors of West Germany. Thanks for talking to me, Monica. Oh, Stephanie, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. You open the book with an anecdote of witchcraft that sounds straight out of the 16th century, except for the twist ending. The alleged witch takes her accuser to court and wins a defamation suit. Yeah. I was surprised reading that, and I can only imagine how shocking it must have been to find in the archives. So how did you stumble upon it? Yeah, no, I was very surprised by it, too, when I first found it. And as a historian, I tend to be... I tend to get most excited about things that I find very difficult to interpret. So I was in the state library in Berlin and I was sitting in the reading room and I don't remember anymore where the reference appeared, but I stumbled across a reference to a book that was called Are There Witches Among Us that had been published by a guy named Johann Kruse in 1951. And I thought, well, that's weird. That that can't be about witches. It's got to be about something else. It must be a metaphor some kind of political metaphor, who knows? And I thought, but I, I have to find out because that's that's too funny and interesting. So, you know, I asked for the book to be called down from the stacks and I started reading it and I realized, oh, no, it's about witches. It's about, it's about witchcraft fears in early 1950s, what was then West Germany. And then I, then I got really interested and I started thinking about um, how could I research something like that? And as I began to read more about the history of witchcraft, and by the way, the modern piece, modern witchcraft fears are considerably under-researched, I would say. Their anthropologists have written about them in Europe, folklorists have written about them, but among historians, there's been very little work done on them. So 
once I started doing that, I just um, it opened up all kinds of new questions for me about the the immediate post-war past. It is very surprising to find wonder doctors and witchcraft accusations smack in the middle of a modernizing, shiny West Germany. Can you set the stage? I mean, World War II is over. The Western powers are coming in and remaking West Germany in their own image. Can you tell us more about the superstitions and magical beliefs that were resurfacing at this time? There's a few different um, types of phenomena that the book looks at. I think there are also many others, but these are the ones that were particularly interesting to me. So I was interested in the phenomenon of of people accusing their neighbors of witchcraft. Another one was, uh, as you mentioned, these uh, figures, and there there were a number of them, but I focus in particular on one whose name was Bruno Groning, who was something like what in the United States we would refer to as a faith healer. Um, but that is really kind of a misnomer in this case, I would say. it's um, Bruno Groning was um, a healer who healed people through spiritual means, um, but he was not an evangelist. A lot of Americans associate faith healing with evangelism in the United States, and he was not like that. He didn't preach, he didn't stand in front of people and, and tell them to come back to God. He mostly healed people by being in their proximity and looking at them. And so I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by huge, enormous crowds of tens of thousands of people coming to see this man and walking away in some cases, healed of whatever had ailed them when they got there. Um, he, you know, went on tour throughout West Germany over a period of months. And, and this was very widely reported in the newspapers. There were also numerous, and now many historians have written about this, but I found it to be an important part of the story that I was trying to tell. There were numerous sightings, thousands of sightings of the Virgin Mary and other kind of holy figures in this period, drawing in hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. There were prayer groups that formed to to perform exorcisms for people who were, again, experiencing spiritual malaise of one kind or another. So they're just a tremendous variety, actually. But what interested me about all of them, and the reason I put them all in a single frame in this book, is that they were all obsessed with evil in one way or another, which I found to be extremely striking, given the immediate post-war, post-Nazi, post-Holocaust context. I want to ask you about what that meaning was, but using the anthropological explanations of magic that you discuss in the book, which is that the fundamentals of witchcraft and magic more generally look at questions that go beyond earthly causality. Why did I fall sick? Well, I fell sick because I ate a bad turnip to really more spiritual and social causality. Why did this particular turnip show up in my soup at this particular moment and not in someone else's soup? (laughs) So why a witch and wonder doctor craze? And why in this moment in West German society? Yeah, I would say that one of the things that my book wants to get people to think about is our insistence that, you know, the thing that makes modernity is our distance from a world in which we, you know, feared vengeful gods or something like that um, is, is great. And what I want to say in this book is that our distance from from thinking about vengeful gods and thinking about the possibility that my neighbors are conspiring against me in secret to do me harm, the distance is not nearly as great as we would like to pretend that it is. And I think that in the specific instance of post-war West Germany, tremendous spiritual malaise 
not just guilt, although guilt is part of it, certainly, but tremendous spiritual malaise was unleashed by the loss of the Second World War. So people could feel guilty and feel spiritual disquiet about a number of different things in post-war Germany. They could feel guilty about the persecution and mass murder of the Jews. And a few did. Not as many as we would like to assume did, but some did. Others, though, felt guilty about having lost the war, and they asked themselves what it meant that they had lost the war. Was there some higher purpose behind the fact that they had lost the war? People asked this question even before the war was over, as some other historians have pointed out. Um, but after the war, the question of why we lost and the guilt associated with that and the feeling that perhaps one was being judged, one was being punished by some higher authority, was very potent. And I see a lot of the phenomena that I describe in the book as symptoms of this feeling, of this feeling of being, um, of being judged or being punished. For example, a lot of people who went visiting um, witch doctors and, and, and people we might call faith healers, wonder doctors, as they're referred to in, in the German idiom, a lot of people who went to visit such healers were seeking help with, um, you know, the fact that they'd suddenly become unable to walk. They had been able to walk and then suddenly they had become unable to walk. And I found many dozens of letters from people who had written to this particular faith healer that I was talking about a moment ago, Bruno Groning, and I was struck immediately when I started reading the letters by how many people were telling him that they couldn't walk anymore. They had been able to walk until a certain time, and then they explained to him that they can't walk anymore, and they want to come and see him and see if he can help them with that problem. Because very quickly, he became known as a guy who had a special sort of talent for helping people who were having trouble walking. And through the lens of medical anthropology and, and history of medicines, I began to question what exactly it meant to people to be ill in that moment. And did they associate their illness somehow with this sense of malaise, sense of guilt about having lost the war and all the consequences that had come in the train of, of that loss? So maybe that's part of an answer to your very complicated question. <laughs> I mean, the whole book is an answer to that question, really. <laughs> but like the question of evil isn't just individual to the people seeking treatment for that evil. It's also different for each of the healers, you know, like Bruno Groning. You quote him at length. There are so many different profiles of him. And in all of them, he's just extremely vague. Yes. But on the other hand, this other wonder doctor you talk about, Hermann Zeiss, was extremely specific about the collective guilt that Germans had in the murder of millions of Jews in the Holocaust. Yes. And this was specifically what he was trying to heal. Yeah. And these were only two. I mean, there were other ones who had yet again another kind of persona that they presented to the public. Um Zeiss is a fascinating figure in the book to me, and I wish I knew more about him, actually, but there were very few sources about him, and he put a very fine point on the whole thing. I mean, he said, if we want to know why we're suffering in this country, and he said this 10 years after the war, very sharply, if we want to know why we're suffering, we have to acknowledge that we did this terrible thing, and the Bible says an eye for an eye. So Groening, for example, was a Nazi, right? He had been a Nazi party member and he doesn't put a fine point on anything. 
It's in fact not clear at all whom he thinks is evil. He could very well be referring to the occupying powers when he says that there are evil people among us. He leaves all kinds of questions very open-ended so that the individual could come to him and sort of have their own experience of what was happening, their own sense of redemption based on whatever it is they felt they needed to be redeemed for. Yeah, I think it's quite helpful how you write about the wonder doctor phenomenon as being a kind of vertical haunting. Those who felt guilty, afflicted, or damned looking up to a savior. Very individual. But there's also the other kind, the horizontal haunting, the witch scare that spread over whole communities, especially those wrestling with the lingering effects of denazification and massive numbers of resettled refugees from formerly East German territories. Can you explain how witchcraft accusations surged in a place like Dietmarschen? So the the figure to whom you're referring is this man named Waldemar Eberling, who, who had been working as a healer in a community in the north of Germany for a long time. And had in fact been jailed by the Nazis for acting as a lay healer without a license. That's a whole another complicated piece of the story here. There's a very strong and important, I think, history of lay medicine in German history, which the Nazis actually tried to stamp out unsuccessfully. And Eberling himself had been jailed during the Nazi period for purveying his, his personal form of spiritual medicine. But after the war, um, he is invited to a community near where he lives to treat a little child that is having trouble. Well, it's, it's never really described very well in the sources, but the baby was very ill. So this healer, Aberling, was called to the house and asked if he could perform some medicine for this child. And he, according to the parents, was able to do just that. The child got better and soon was eating well again and everybody was happy. But while Aberling was hanging out with this family, because they became friends after this, after this cure, um, he began to make suggestions. These were not usually verbal suggestions, which is an interesting part of the story too, in my opinion. But he begins to sort of hint or gesture that some of the neighbors might not be people that the family wants to trust. And one thing leads to another. And within this community, a number of people find themselves accused of witchcraft. Again, in this sort of tacit way, nobody goes up to anybody and says, you're a witch. It doesn't work that way. All of this is done by suggestion. That's part of what's kind of complicated and very nuanced about this kind of idiom of social conflict that witchcraft represents, right? So the whole village gets embroiled in this story that he's kind of kicked off. This whole thing ends up going to, to court over and over again. It ends up in the highest court in, in West Germany, actually. And Aberling is ultimately jailed. It's an example of the ways that after the war, in a smaller face-to-face community where everyone knew something that someone else might have done during the preceding political period, and maybe didn't want everyone else to know it, there's a great deal of anxiety concerning who knows what about whom. And in my estimation, that has a lot to do with the lingering of subterranean aspects of Nazism 
um, the ways in which uh, trust had been tremendously damaged in these communities among people who had been supporters of the Nazis, people who had not been supporters of the Nazis, and people in between. And the place this all happened had a lot to do with that, too. I mean, Dietmarschen had a very high proportion of party members, right? The highest. The highest, right, right. So I wonder how much of these accusations were attempts, subconscious or unconscious, to reckon with that, with the failed nature of denazification, with the fact that a lot of people who'd committed crimes in the Nazi era were still walking free. Were some of those accusations attempts to find some other form of justice? Exactly, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I think that's the point. I mean, a lot of these cases don't have documentation, or the documentation is very spare, right? This one has boxes of documentation. It was my sense that that was precisely what was afoot, was that denazification's failure got worked out in other ways. Although I don't think that even those ways would be satisfying to us morally necessarily, because people doing the accusing are not always the people that we'd want to be doing the accusing. And yet I think it's, it's quite clear nonetheless that these witchcraft accusations, at least on some level, were a type of complicated working out of things that could not be worked out on the surface. They couldn't be confronted directly. You put this idea really well in the conclusion of the book, so I'm going to turn your own question on you if you don't Mm -hmm. mind. What does it mean for all of us if a nation can turn so quickly from building Auschwitz to constructing an affluent and neon-lit world? What remains unsaid? What is pushed out of sight to achieve and grimly maintain a sense of reality, let alone normalcy? after genocide and moral collapse. I mean, I have to say that we're still pushing it out of the way. We're still pushing it out of the way. I I mean, so just to stick with Germany for a second, because when I asked that question, I was also asking a bigger question about, about humanity, our need to see that something is done and dusted. That's over now, let's move on and do something else. But what my part of my contention in the in the book is that you don't just get rid of things like this. You don't have a history like that. And just um, neatly bury it and then walk away. It doesn't work that way. It, it continues to percolate. I think that the fact that a society could go from building Auschwitz to um, reconstructing a society, a gleaming consumer society, uh, memoryless society in some ways, tells us probably something about Germany, but I think it also tells us something about human beings. And I'm, I'm, I'm still not exactly sure what the answer to my question is, but I think it's a question that we have to pose to ourselves. You know, at the end of the day, one of the great um, achievements of post-war German history is that after a long period of walking away from a terrible, enormous thing that had happened and terrible crimes that had been committed, there was a re-engagement with those questions. That's one of the things that impresses me the most about post-war Germany, ultimately. I mean, that, that took a while. That took a number of decades, but it happened. The confrontation took place, and the confrontation continues to take place, actually. I would say that that confrontation, for example, has not happened in the United States, not in the way that I think would be satisfactory, and I think not in the way that a lot of people think would be satisfactory. So, and I do think it has to do with what we choose to think about ourselves and remember about ourselves. Monica Black's new book, A Demon-Haunted Land, has all the hallmarks of a History Channel special. 
Nazis, witches, the supernatural, which makes it all the more surprising that we've forgotten this period of history. We have links in the show notes to the book, as well as some photographs of the massive crowds that Bruno Gröning attracted, and the strange little balls of tin that he would roll up with parts of his hair and fingernail clippings to give to supplicants. Okay, whatever works. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.